Welcome post NRA edition of the Pleasantly Persistent podcast here with co-host Christy McGill and Rosalind is in the house who we met in person in Chicago. So welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, for sure. Um, Can you uh, tell us briefly about your path, what you're up to now, and then we can get into some fun topics? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a chef by trade, um, but I will say that that was not my first career um, in my life of careers. So I think the thing that makes me a little unique is I actually have a background in marketing and brand management and strategy. So I have my degree there, but then I discovered um, this path called culinary research and development. And I've always loved culinary. I've been doing French pastries since I was four. I've been starting to practice my, you know, French technique, savory technique since I was 13, but it wasn't until I learned about culinary R&D that I went back to culinary school and ended up becoming this like really fun, unique marketing and culinary innovation hybrid. So I kind of started this journey at PepsiCo doing marketing from there and then started to transition my career while at PepsiCo from marketing to culinary R&D. So I've been able to see everything from like the insights of a paper idea and how it goes to the grocery stores. And it's been a really fun ride. I've been able to, since then, expand my innovation into food service, work with a lot of the top 200 chains. And I really just love bringing, you know, what love means and what care means and what deliciousness means to menus across the country. So that's kind of where I am. And, and where I, where I am today is, is I'm off on my own. I have my own company, Darling Culinary, and I do a lot of culinary strategy and design and development for clients. So, yeah. I love it. So you were doing pastry at four. So were your, were your parents, was it, was culinary and like good food, a thing in your household growing up? It definitely was. It was. My parents were immigrants. So a lot of the food that I learned was Thai and Chinese, but I had this family friend of ours. He was like an old Jewish grandpa and he needed a baking buddy. So I became his baking buddy on the weekends while my parents and all of them hung out. I learned mandel bread and tarts and laminated doughs. It was a really good time. It was a really fun time. Very grateful. Yeah. What part uh what part of the meal gets you most intrigued and excited? Appetizer, entree, or dessert? I always make room for dessert. I always yeah. want to look at the dessert menu first so I can kind of strategize what my meal will look like. But yeah. do any any of the culinary gra- shows grab you or are they like kind of fake and painful you know I actually really love uh chef's table I think watching the competitive shows gives me mm-hmm. a little bit of anxiety yes <laughs> Wait, I just feel like I'm working go for it Gracie. it does give anxiety to me because like it it's cooking and all of that it's such a beautiful process and like when mm-hmm. you like it's fun to watch those but also it's like it doesn't, it's, I don't know, it's so intense that I just can't stress me out so badly. 
<laughs> yeah. And, and I'm a lover. I mean, I'm a fighter too, and I need to be, but mostly I'm a lover. So watching people like, I'm going to crush you. And I was like, oh, yeah. can't we just get along? Um, Have you so seen any of the children's ones, any of the kids cooking shows? No, I haven't. Those are, those are really fun. Um, Cause they're so, they're so much more of like a camaraderie type of experience that they build on those. They're, they're based off of all the major ones, but they, right. um, like the kids pair up and like help each other. And there's a lot more like culinary mentorship in it. I might watch them with my daughter. We love them. Um, Cause it has still the competitive edge, but it, it really, they do a good job with it of making it much more like, you're not trying to crush these kids dreams. <laughs> well, and if they pair them up, then, you know, it kind of shows the teamwork too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But I, I am drawn towards chef's table just because you get to see the origin story of what drives chefs and their creativity. And I, I, I think that every chef is different. Right. Um, so seeing that story, I mean, I've, I've cried, I've laughed through all of them. I've uh, watched them all multiple times. Yeah. Good. And there's uh what cookbook has been the most used over the years and what's your current cookbook that you are using the most? Oh my gosh. I, I will say that flavor Bible continues to be the inspiration for flavor um, and pairing. So flavor Bible, it's not actually a cookbook per se, but imagine like a thesaurus for ingredients. So it's not extensive. It's just a good starting point. But if you want to know, you know, what goes well with fennel, you can actually look up fennel and then it will say, you know, these spices, these herbs, these meats, these vegetables will go well with fennel. And if they go really well, they'll be bolded and, or like italicized or in all caps. And, and mm. I like to use that when thinking through what flavor combinations for the concepts I design and, and sometimes they'll even leave me like, oh, I didn't think of that. And then I'll kind of go down this rabbit hole, but flavor Bible for sure. Yeah. And have you written or are you inspired to do so at some point? Have you created a cookbook? I'm, I'm in the process, uh, knock on wood. I just yeah. wrote the proposal for it. And so I guess I'll oh, just cool. say it out loud into the yeah. universe right now. Amazing. It's yeah. a book uh, that is called Culinary Compassion. It's a cookbook that is based around the spectrum of human emotion and cooking for emotions and like the mental aspect of human lives versus just like the tactical side of, you know, like price, ops, daytime, like genre. It's it's pretty interesting. I've been teaching it at CIA too. So it's time to publish, I think. So I'm... Um... Tell me more. So like, what does that mean? Like if you're feeling this, like, yeah. Yeah. So the, the cookbook itself will, will be something that I hope will appeal to home cooks and professional chefs, but it's premised on the idea that people eat and drink their feelings. Right. And, and those mm -hmm. feelings come from the things that are happening in their lives, happening in their world, um, not just in their little, you know, like micro world, but like the macro role of what's happening, you know, like politically, societally, you know, health and wellness, economically. And when enough people choose, you know, similar eating patterns or like similar dishes based on what they're feeling, that's when a culinary trend emerges. And 
so if we can understand the emotion part of it before the trend actually hits, if we can understand the societal forces and the social mood um, that determines people's behaviors, we can actually design for something that's much deeper um, and really connects to humanity. So for example, you know, in America, when someone says, you know what, I need something that's really comforting, that's really warm, usually there's a cheese component to it. It's gooey, it's melty. Sometimes there's like a warm brothy component to it. And it's these culinary, like sensory signatures that are tied to the emotion. So if you want to make something that's comforting in America, you know, you could have, you know, things that have bread, things that have cheese, things that are brothy, things with noodles. Um, usually it's savory, or if it's going to be on the sweet side, it'll be like light, fluffy, like cake or something that's a little like decadent, like chocolate. And that's just in America too. So the cookbook actually will explore different countries around the world and how they portray their emotions through food because Brazil, Italy, you know, the U S Japan, you know, their foods that they use to celebrate or soothe will be different, inherently different with different sensory aspects and aromas and flavors. It's pretty out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I love that about food though, because I think like food is so integral to like everything we do, right. From both an emotional level and a sustenance standpoint. And it's, I mean, it's so tied to like our communities, it, no matter where you're from, like food is used to celebrate and in all different aspects, as well as, you know, there's food served at funerals, right? Like there's all of these pieces of our lives are tied to food. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I think it's, a, I think it's a beautiful idea. I've never heard someone like speak about it in that way before. So I'm fascinated. And, and, and it's you just got me very interested because just different cultures fascinate me and uh, like what comfort food would be in different countries and thinking that it's not the same comfort food uh, across all countries is really interesting. Mm, cool. That's yeah. really amazing. That's awesome. Um, I mean, if you think about it, um, in a lot of Southeast Asian cultures, the texture of cheese is a very new texture. It hasn't really risen to stardom yet because it has this sticky, creamy texture that a lot of Southeast Asians aren't used to. But in the U.S., cheese is synonymous with, you know, comfort and indulgence. So mm. there's another mm. example. All right. What were you saying, mm -hmm. Matt? No, 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 you're good. Oh, so many fun food questions. Um, oh, all right, I'll table that for a second. So <laughs> mo moving on to, to get back. But so NRA uh, yes. just bumped into each other, which is a really fun moment uh, at NRA. What, what were you expect? I guess, how was it different than what you expected? What was... And, and what was the best sample you had? The most memorable sample? Ooh, okay. Well, usually pre-COVID, I've always expected NRA to be more of an equipment show. It, you know, 10 years ago, it was, you know, it's where you go for all the inspirational ingredients and like all the products that are coming out, how you put it on your menu. And up until I would say like 2018, 2019, it kind of started transitioning into like more equipment and tech which I was like, that's okay, uh, you know? But I feel like this year, like they really brought it. They really brought it in terms of like food trends. And I went there expecting and hoping to see 
how the health and wellness trends and what products and ingredients are really starting to show through in ubiquity. So in March, I was, I went to Expo West to do research, get inspiration. And there was a lot of things like kelp and, you know, adaptogens and mushroom, everything. And I, I kind of use Expo West and NRA as like the, the barometer of how fast a trend will move from inception to ubiquity. Right. So if it's at Expo West, but it's not an NRA yet, then I'll be like, okay, well, it's not quite there yet, but maybe like in a year or two, it'll really start to spread. And so at NRA, I saw that plant-based meat is like still going strong. Um, and, and the technology behind it has just been incredible to the point where I think if somebody put something in front of me, like my favorite product in the plant-based meat aisle was chunk. So good. Oh my God. This is so good. I, I, like, we got dragged over there. If you, if you put that on my plate and didn't tell me and like served it up, I I don't know that I would know. I mean, the way that it pulls apart and like, it was wild. The muscle fiber, the flavor, the fattiness of it, the, just the way that like it it cuts like steak, they're like filet cuts. Like when you cut into it, I was like, oh my goodness, this, this doesn't even look like, it looks like animal meat it tastes like it there there the texture was incredible um and then another plant based uh product that really kind of blew my mind too like on the the chicken front was meaty really really I, good I, you know chunk had i think they were using like gluten as their substrate yep. and that's fine um, I think that if you can find a way to remove the allergen, which I'm not sure if it's possible from a chunk standpoint, but for meaty, the fact that they used uh, like mushroom mycelium, I thought like the cleanest ingredient line and, you know, their crispy chicken, uh, their breaded chicken was, was just out of this world. Yeah. We tried, we tried their burnt ends and that I was really impressed by those. I had had their their chicken, like, because they did that collab with Mama Fuku. That's what they did for Expo West. Yeah. Um, and it, it is it is really neat to see, like, the diversity of ingredients now kind of coming into the plant-based meats because, you know, there's a lot, I don't know, like, having that one be predominantly mushroom is, is wild and really neat to see because so many of them are, are super technology-based, which is fine. But mm-hmm. to see what they've been able to do with mushrooms is, is fascinating. Yes. And from a chef's standpoint, I like that they don't really salt. It's like, they don't salt their chicken, their chicken, right? Like a chef has the freedom to control the salt level themselves, which to me is really important. Like some other of the meat analogs, when they're already salted, I can't have as much room to play or to add the sauces that I like, because I'm afraid it's just going to be too salty. So yeah, those were the two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in staying in plant-based, where do you, like, we're going to guess NRA four or five years from now, like, what will plant-based look like? Will it be less? Will it be a different, like, do you think plant-based is, is like, for your clients who you're working with, does plant-based have its space? And which kind of protein do you think has the most staying power in that space? I think plant-based in terms of meat analogs, it's going to continue to evolve because the conversation 
around sustainability and authenticity will continue to involve itself. A lot of millennials and younger generations right now, not only are they looking for the sustainability factor of the foods that they choose, but I think that they're looking for the authenticity. So like, why are they making meat analogs taste like animal meat? Why are they not embracing the fact that you can have vegetables, you can have grains be protein sources as well? And I'm not saying either one is good or bad. I just think that the conversation is going to evolve. So there was another plant-based uh, meat called, called, what was it? Uh, Fable. They did mushroom meat. They didn't even try to say we're like beef, we're like chicken. You know, they just said we're mushrooms. We use the mushroom stems. It has a really great texture, mouthfeel, flavor. And I kind of think that that conversation around veg-centric protein will continue to rise. But the meat analog isn't going away. I just think it's going to become more and more prolific. It's just going to be like no big deal. I think. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, we've really seen where it's grown and it's, it's like a nuance around like, is someone truly a vegan looking for this product? They are looking for something completely different than you're probably the larger swath of consumers that's now coming into the plant-based world. And so it's, it's, I think we'll keep seeing like shifts and evolution around like what the consumer is looking for and, and how that all land will be, will be interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, just like the dairy free milks, you know, before it was like, ooh, soy and almond. And then yeah. and now it's just like every coffee shop has four different types of milk that you can choose from. And no one even blinks an eye anymore. And I think that that's what the plant-based meat protein arena is going to become. Yeah. Yeah. For, yeah. I think like where it'll, I mean, that took and how long it took plant-based milk to even get there. Right. Like, I mean, I feel like it was just a couple of years ago. You had to ask at every coffee shop, do you have an alternative milk? Now, if you ask that, you're kind of crazy. They have one for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's, let's dig into what you saw in terms of AI and robots and all of that. There was a lot of that at NRA from what I got to glimpse as I was racing between booths. Yeah. The robots are here. I mean, anyone that's trying to fight it, just like, it's time to just accept that they are here. They're not going away and it's just going to accelerate. You know, I think robots have been pretty well known in other aspects of different industries, you know, like self-driving cars or cars that automatically break self-park, um, you know, like smart vending machines and even going so far back to as like Microsoft Excel, like was technically like AI-ish when accountants yeah, I mean, I think, accounting and like, yeah so now like in restaurants I feel like you would have you know not not that long ago you would consider a lot of like the way we went through drive-throughs and some of that to mm -hmm. all be like a, a, a forefront of like AI in the industry yeah. but now I mean did you see the one I wish I could remember the name of it I mean it was like a whole like lot like line prep demonstration through robotics which was yeah, which is basically what Sweetgreen is doing in some locations now. I think they're testing like two that are fully robotic prep lines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that was the Murphy booth. That was they had like a deep fryer, and then they had something like kind of breading and yep. yes, yeah, yeah. You know, I think I think that's just the way you know it's going to be. It creates consistency. It controls cost because labor is so expensive nowadays, and 
COVID kind of showed that, you know, the human element of it, if you can't be there to cook next to each other, then having a robot that can do like the really menial, tedious tasks of pulling stuff out of fryers, you know, like putting things that are hot in the pizza oven in and out, things that make cooking a little bit safer uh, instead of having a human, you know, contend with a 900 degree oven to make Neapolitan pizzas, right? I, I don't hate it. I, I am a little concerned. You know, this is kind of like rationale or merit or turbo chefs or Mary chefs. They've had programming. You put this thing in and it's going to, you know, like automatically steam it and then microwave it or bake it or air fry it. This is just the next iteration that's not box shaped. It is. It's, I feel like there'll be this like transition that's, that's tricky, right? Cause like food, uh, and we kind of talked about this earlier, how much food is tied to like human emotions and who we are yeah. and like cooking is to me like a form of art. And that, that piece of like how that marries up with like chefs and then also just the need to like, I guess refine labor and all of that. It's, it's very tricky. And I'm not, I don't, I go back and forth. Not like I'm fascinated by seeing restaurants automate these lines. And I think for like somewhere like, especially like that kind of QSR space, it makes sense, but I don't, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. And maybe you have thoughts on like, how does it come into like more of that, like fine dining culinary driven space? Yeah. I think you'll, the human element of labor, both front of house and back of house will continue to be human. I think in fine dining. I think so, because it's that human connection of having, you know, the person that's, you know, serving your table, that's creating that experience for you, you know, having like looking into their eyes, seeing the smile, seeing the emotions. I, I really hope that doesn't go away. You know, they might use different elements of tech where it's, you know, like maybe the table is a screen that shows different backgrounds and videos that adds to the plating experience. Like that could be really cool. But in terms of like, at least the front of house, I think the human element will remain at least for mid-scale and fine dining and that people would want to pay more or would be willing to pay more for that human experience. That will actually be a competitive advantage, something that you market about your restaurant. Like we actually have human people working, you know, like you're, you're celebrating humanity by yeah. coming. Yeah. Cause there's, I mean, there's so much warmth of that with food, right? It's like, even if you're, if you're alone, right. You go eat at a restaurant for some of that connection. So you yeah. remove that. And I, I mean, you almost, a lot of people would see no need to actually eat in the space anymore. They'll just take their food who take it to go a lot more. I think without that like connector, I mean, how many people sit at a bar so they can talk to that bartender just for that interaction during their meal. Exactly. It's the intentionality of, do I just want my cup of coffee and not talk to anybody at an airport or am I looking to hang out with somebody? Although you say bartender, did you see Cecilia, the AI bartender? In I Lake did. <laughs> It was wild. That good was sign wild. If, I, if I was creeped out or not, it was it was pretty wild. Like the cues and the interaction with the guests. Uh, and it's funny because I, when I landed in Kansas City, we just got a brand new airport and you spoke about coffee. This made me think of this. I was, got home and landed and knew I was going home to little children. So I was like, I need coffee quickly, even though it's 7 p.m. Because <laughs> I have to pretend I was not at NRA for five days. Um, <laughs> We have our first fully robotic coffee kiosk in there. 
serving up like five different types of coffee and we could like watch the whole process. And I, that was our, my first like full experience. We have stuff that's like partial, but the whole thing from ordering to getting it handed to you was all done. Man, it's, it's so interesting, but I feel like it's like a grumpy old man right now. I just like, even like a barista <laughs> at a coffee shop. I just like, I love like, right. It's, it's such, whether it's making a latte or creating food, it's such an art form. And, um, yeah, but I'm sure it's coming. It has its place. All right. Um, oh, there's so much more here. All right. To wrap with a couple fun questions. For sure. Come at me. Yeah. So what's entering my head? Lots of things. So, all right. So besides salt and pepper, if you could just have four seasonings, what would you go with? Actually, three seasonings. What would Ooh. you go with? If I could just have three seasonings, what would be the third one? No salt and pepper. With uh, not including salt and pepper. Yeah, okay. besides salt and pepper, you can have three more seasonings. Fish sauce. Mmm, heck yeah. I want that umami. Mm -hmm. I'm all about the umami, I think. Um, I would choose honeycomb, if that mm. makes sense. I know, oh. I know, because if I want, you know, like a sweetness aspect to it, like that sweet, savory. Yeah. yeah. And then I would choose something spicy because I love, I love spicy. I think Serrano peppers cool. because it has a little bit of the floral. And so if I had to make, you know, something with all of that, I have the sweet from the honeycomb, the spicy from the Serrano. They're, they're all very nuanced because honeycomb isn't just sweet. It's also savory. It's floral. It has all that and fish sauce. I think I'd be yeah. set. All right. And then last question, if you could show up, arrive to any country tonight for dinner and get some genuine fill in the blank food from that country, where are you going? I'm going to Morocco. I don't oh, even know. Yes. Yeah, strong choice. I'm with you. I'm going to Morocco. I, I've been obsessed with preserved lemons mm. and just like the rich spices there, like the, the, culinary history there i feel like i can't go wrong i can't go wrong it's a perfect choice <laughs> i know let's look up plane tickets after this call <laughs> let's let's go now <laughs> a tasting uh, tour <laughs> uh, uh, uh cool uh well such an enjoyable conversation where is the best place for people to find you yes if you ever want to reach out, uh, just feel free to email me. It's Rosalyn, R-O-S-A-L-Y-N at darlingculinary.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty responsive on that. Um, but an email just to reach out, say hi, let's collaborate. Let's just nerd out on food together. Let's bring compassion through the food that we create. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks, y'all. Have a great, great day.